0: Well, I'm Les Bursell. I'm from this country. I was conceived in the Warranora Valley, so I consider myself related to the Norengera clan, the girl people of the Dharawal-speaking people of southern Sydney. Uh, I've done an archaeological degree and a degree in... or a master's degree in anthropology, and I'm a local historian. But I hold my Indigenous culture very high.
1: I'm Dean Kelly, and... Through my father, saltwater people, Yornwell uh south coast of New South Wales. And through my mother, freshwater, Nampa, Wawan people, so western New South Wales. So the best of both worlds, <laughs> fresh and salt. Yeah, good stuff.
2: Um, and so want to get you guys talking about, um, actually if we can start with, just going back to um, a lot of listeners won't be familiar with Indigenous um, culture of Australia, and just maybe um, m- maybe Les, if you can talk about um, just just a basic overview of of societal structure, sure. um, and we're really here to um, primarily talk about um, traditional watercraft today, but to give some sort of context to it. All right. Um,
0: well, let's go back. I'll go back immediately about 1,200 years and about 1,200 years ago Aboriginal women and around the Sydney Basin uh, developed uh, fishing lines. They actually developed a shellfish hook and a braided fishing line and they used to use watercraft extensively and fish in the early morning and the late evening. They were actually referred to as ghost women, man, And uh, so those canoes were very very important to us going back that far we can just know that women's in fa- women, in fact, were so good with their fishing that they really pushed the need for men spearing fish almost out of the picture. So those Nui were very important. And uh, we can trace that history right back. In the darawal culture, in fact, the fisherwoman, as a mark of her reaching maturity, quite often had the little finger of her left hand excised so that she could more easily fish without it catching on her little finger and so that's process called malgun so the Darawa women were well known as fisherwomen and they used canoes and they used canoes in this river and in the bay and they, even we know, Philip and Cook both say that they went out to sea in them and they took their children with them and he said that they were the most scurrilous canoes but the thing was that they were incredibly serviceable and they just lasted forever So Cook complained and Philip complained that they were just a piece of bark tied at the ends with a stick for a thwart to hold them open. He said, and they were easily made a couple of hours, but they lasted decades and they were very serviceable. Now around here, the women used to put a clay liner in the bottom of them and they would have a small fire burning in that. And they would also have a fire brand at the end of the canoe to reflect on their shellfish hook and they would catch fish and they'd have the kids in the canoe with them. They'd catch the fish and they'd dress them, clean them, put them on the fire and cook them up and so the kids would be out with Mum and they'd get breakfast or, or supper. Pretty damn important. Now, Dean will probably want to talk about Pemelway and his use of canoes.
1: Well, I think I'll start with um, how valuable these, these craft were, these watercraft canoes. Now, he's, that's Sydney language. But in, in my father's country... And his grandmother's there's an island that's nine kilometers off the coast Montague Island now the men never swam out there but it was it was known and it's still known now that that's where the men used to go when they'd get put through their their stages of life their law so they would go nine kilometers off the shore and the the name of that island is uh, Baranguba which is a traditional Aboriginal name Durga name so to get out there, they must have been pretty confident that these things weren't going to sink um, mm. and that they were going to last. Thanks. So um, they're a very v- valuable uh, resource to have. Thanks. And they would have had a choice of materials. That's, that would have been the other thing. And, and especially in Sydney here, they would have looked at the tree, taken their time, known when the right time was to harvest that bark Off the off the stringy bark would have been the main uh, bark used, but there are other materials that were used, other barks, but stringy bark was the main one and they would have showed a lot of patience to make sure they got the right tree, took it off at the right time and make sure they didn't damage it so it would last as Les said um, for as long, because they didn't want to be building these things every day. No,
0: so it damages the tree doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Now I know that um, in some of these areas on the coast they use the turpentine it's a form of stringy bark and the reason they use that it was impervious to um, shipworm. And so you could build your canoe and it just didn't need treatment. It never got shipworm in it. Yeah. So it was very important. But as, Shane, uh, as uh, Dean was pointing out, uh, they wanted them to last a long time because they were very mindful of the environment and stripping off the bark for a canoe probably shortened the life of the tree significantly. Yeah, yeah it Probably knocked it down almost immediately.
2: Yeah.
0: So actually on that note, I'm,
2: was the tree only able to be used once?
1: Yeah, they'd only, they'd only take one sheet, what mm. they needed from that tree, but the intent was never to kill the tree. And, and in most cases, the tree survived, and mm. it would pretty much just scar the tree. Mm. And it would the bark would fold back into the tree and heal, just yeah. like if we got a cut on our leg, yeah. it would heal itself over time, over, over 10 years. Mm. You'd, you'd still see that where the bark was taken, but... It, it was obvious that that a piece of bark had been taken from that area.
0: Yeah, yeah they weren't profligate in the way they used the environment. I know that um, Philip puzzled as to why the uh, the local people wouldn't communicate with him. He tried very hard, according to his diary, to make communication with the local people, the, you know, the Gadigal people and the the Wangal people. But they wouldn't have much to do with them, and that's because they saw how profligate the colonists were. they were netting fish and they were leaving the bycatch on the beach and the, you know so the Aboriginal people were very aware of their environment, and they knew that mm. if you damage the trees, you damage the environment, it doesn't come back, and you don't survive mm. so it was a very very you know yeah they had very a very careful.
1: very good understanding of of this here and 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 to kill it, you kill yourself in reality yeah, that's right and that's, that's what's exactly happening right. now is. We're destroying things that we can't put back. Mm. Once we take it from that environment, we can never put it back the same.
0: That's right. Now, the use of canoes around here, well, we have a very famous uh, warrior, Pemboy, and he was a great canoe user. And, uh, in fact, uh, it took a long time for the British to work out what he was doing because uh, he would uh, lead an attack in Sydney Cove and then... Uh, 10 or 15 hours later he'd be up in Parramatta leaving, leading an attack against Parramatta and then he might be up in Oyster Bay and he might be leading attack there and people thought how did this guy get around and now for a long while the rumour was that uh, Pemaway or Pimbloy was uh, his, his totem as crow and people used to say that he turned into a crow and he flew from place to place but what we know is that he was a very adept paddler and he knew the creeks and the waterways so well that he could paddle, you know, 10, 15 kilometres in in an hour or two, a couple of hours. Very, very clever paddler, very good paddler. And, of course, he'd turn up somewhere and the British would just still be getting their belts and their bloody uniforms on and he'd be leading another battle. Yeah, we've got a photo here we're just showing, Bryce, and this is uh, him. And they, Philip refers to these as... P- pudding stirrers, and they had. That's how they. They didn't row or have oars, but they had in each hand a large paddle, like a pudding stirrer, okay. and they used to use that and and paddle like that. So it's quite fantastic, a, quite a good one. Yeah, that's a pretty common picture. If you put mm. Pemulwuy in Pem-el-way into the computer, you'll come up with that image.
1: Okay, and you could see um, that there's no there's no signs of disease or, no. or fat or no. it, it, the physiques on these men. And women, were just very lean and very very fit. Yeah, five foot six. Yeah, five foot
0: six. Incredibly healthy, very light, no body fat. Yeah, Yeah. but of course they their diet was very good, and they knew exactly. Just you didn't see a kangaroo and spear it. You you picked the kangaroo you were going to eat. You picked the kangaroo that was in the prime of its condition. That's that's what you did. You got always you picked the best things. You just. These days, we just grab whatever we can grab. But in those days, mm. you only caught the fish you wanted to catch. You only speared the animal you wanted to eat. You didn't go out there and willy-nilly take whatever came.
1: And, mm. and they had a lot of patience with that stuff. Whenever oh, yes. they take the life of something, there was a lot of thought, but also mm. a lot of patience put behind yeah. and what prayer. they are going to do.
0: And prayer yep. and thank you. You yep. yep. always yep. thank yep. Always the Always asking. Animal. Or, yeah, or yep. ask, yeah. Yep. Yep. No, when I talk to Max Harrison about that, he tells me as a young man, he was always taught... To even ask the river before yeah, he took water.
1: Before you take anything. Yeah, so yeah.
0: it's a very important uh, part of their lives.
1: Okay. Um, tell
0: um,
2: the traditional watercraft.
0: Hmm.
2: You've spoken about the bark canoes. Hmm. Was that the main main type of watercraft that we used?
0: Well, that's uh, to me. That's what I know. But I also know that they, the women, uh, loved the water, and they they had a. a almost like an early surfboard like a like a scoop shaped um board and we actually have some records of women surfing really um in the in the bay yeah so you know what's you say king that that hawaiian guy who made some sort of claim as being the Uh, discovery uh, yeah um, yeah we we had it hundreds of years ago i mean who are these hawaiians (laughs) think they are we we had it before they even got to hawaii
1: on the on the south coast down at eden um a couple of the, the locals down there, one was a, a sites officer for the Lands Council, had taken me into one of the creeks and shown me a dugout down south, still mm. there today. Mm. It's there because it's only half finished, so people don't see it mm. because it's not a finished product, so they'll walk past it every day. Mm. But the styles and shapes and sizes changed across the country, sure. um, but the ones in Sydney were pretty much, you, you know, they were unique to this country. they designed them for what they had here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and very sturdy. I mean, you look at that. You know, that's quite a sturdy, sturdy-looking boat. You know, that's drawn by the uh, the Sydney artists, and you can you can see that it's a pretty sturdy boat. And when you hear you know people like Philip saying or Cook saying that no, they were pretty easily made, but they were incredibly serviceable. Um, you know, it gives me great pride to think that they yeah, yeah, yeah. they can do it. I mean, the funniest story I've ever heard is. Um, when Benelong had a fight with Colby over a young girl who'd come into Benelong's camp, and then when she saw Colby, who was supposed to be a pretty big, handsome guy, she rather fancied him, and she moved over to Colby's camp. And so Benlong and Colby decided they'd fight it out to see who, who would you know, have her as his wife, as a third wife. Benelong already had two wives. Baron Garoo was his second wife, wasn't yep, she? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, actually, I could find the name of that girl if I'd have thought I could have brought it up with me. But while he was fighting with Colby, Colby gave him a proper dishing, he really got done. Well, the story is that Barangaroo went over and put a hole in his canoe as a, as a payback. <laughs> <laughs> so she wasn't happy that he was lusting after this young thing.
2: And that um, that would have been quite a quite a major slight, I imagine. You know? Oh, a mas- yeah, a mas- massive. Yeah, yeah.
0: That was like taking
1: down. something away. Yeah, it'd be um, like
0: putting giving yeah. you putting all four tyres of your car down at the one time. Yeah, and some. Very inconvenient. You were out of service for a little while. You were, yeah. Operation.
1: Yeah. Tell me, is
2: there any um, is does is, is there knowledge um, of roughly how long it took to make a canoe from from the time the tree was chosen to to finish? Well, or? Dean
0: probably knows more about it than I. But I, I can. The only canoes that I've seen made are the ones that I've seen made up in the north of Australia, and they were the ones that I'm talking about, the bark canoes. And they took one to two days to make, because you harvested the, the bark and you scraped it back. Then when you've got everything right, um, you got your, your twine, your, your your vines, you know, your braided tie-ups for the ends, then you have to heat the bark over a fire, or over a very low smoky fire to get it pliable. Um, so each of those processes is four or five hours, so two or three days. But you're not working eight-hour days. It's two or three days of very... Fun, great fun, and a bit yeah. of bit of activity, and at the end of it, you got a very nice canoe.
1: Yeah, not yeah. under the pressures that we are today no, to no, right. to meet a timeline or something. No. It was it was done properly, okay. and you know, yeah, two three days. But the, the ideal situation, they would pull it off the tree, mm. and, and, and they'd start working it straight away. But mm. they weren't they didn't have a watch yeah. on on their wrist to be always watching. Mm. You know, time was pretty much when that that old fella come up in the sky in the morning. And he went down at night, hmm. they'd work during that day or or if it was too hot they'd, they'd just put themselves into a comfortable position and and wait until the time was right
0: hmm. okay. so um, you could probably do one in a day if you if we we're using modern you know methods of uh, what Presbyterian time management we'd knock it up in probably eight or ten hours, yeah. but there's no pressure on you. Why would you be in a hurry you'd do it? I I've actually been told by some old fellas that they wouldn't take the bark off the tree in certain times of the year because the sap was not right and yep. mm. and the bark split. So the people would actually watch the tree and see when the appropriate time was to take it. Yeah. And, yeah. and
1: there's an old fella who's just passed away now, um he passed away probably in the last twelve months. He was from Lightning Ridge, but he used to go and he used to go and test the trees. And and we know now that the best time is when the trees start to grow again, which is spring. But he used to go and put a cut in a tree and watch when the sap started to flow, because mm. you need that sap in the bark That's right. to seal it as well. Mm. But it, it, it just it just works when you've got that sap there. We've tried to take them off at different times when it's not right in the middle of summer.
0: It's cracks and at,
1: splits. Uh, well, it's like it's stuck there with super glue. Mm. You fight you fight the bark. Mm. When you take it off at the right time, it'll the tree'll give it to you.
0: Mm. It just peels yeah. off. Yeah. Yep.
2: And was the, was the bark reversed, so the outside...
1: Some, in some cases, also soaked. We've mm. soaked them, mm. and, and sometimes soaking them allows you a bit more play with them. Mm. It puts that moisture and when you put them over the fire, that yeah. moisture comes out, and you can yeah, sort they, of mould uh, them.
0: That's something I'd forgotten about. You know, they do, up north, they always soak them. Yeah. They always it'd be an overnight soak. So you take the tree off, you scrape it back, and then you stick it in the, in the river or the, or the billabong, and you just weight it down just overnight and you get up yeah. in the morning. And as Dean says, these are pretty tough bark and you need a bit of pliability. Yeah. So soaking gives you that and then you steam that. Well, they're nice and wet, then you steam them and they really are pliable and they do tend to hold their shape well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and I did yeah. one probably two years ago now um, that we got from the south coast of Batemans Bay off off some of the Lands Council people and we brought it to Sydney and soaked it for a week mm-hmm. and we didn't use a fire at all. Mm. As the day got warmer, the bark just went into shape yeah. it fell into shape it was made to do what it did yeah. yeah so it just depends on the conditions but it is about taking the bark at the right time that's right not just trying to get it any to any time
0: and when you think about it you wouldn't be making a bark canoe now I mean we're just what, the winter starts tomorrow doesn't it so we wouldn't be taking bark now the fishing for a starter people would be moving away from the coast inland to more sheltered environments mm. and so this is a bad time. So they'd be coming out here in spring, and if they needed a new canoe, that's the time they'd make it. Yep. Uh, so And we know, you know, you read Cook's journal, and he says that when he came into Botany Bay, there were half a dozen people out fishing in canoes, so we know it was a big thing. And when you look at where people come from and how do they move around, like the people at modern-day La Perouse would have come across the bay to modern-day canal. We know that people came down from uh, up the coast... Uh, Broken Bay and they used canoes to get across all those waterways you couldn't get across Port Jackson without a canoe so people had that you know Bungaree when he came across he came across in a canoe from Broken Bay so these people knew the area they knew the waterways and they they knew the canoes were the only way to move around around here you'd use canoes for duck hunting and fishing and a whole range of things so pretty amazing yeah okay
2: have we have we got knowledge of the tools, the actual specific tools that were
0: used? We know, well, they used they use very well made stone axes yeah. around here, hafted stone axes. Actually, I've had in over in the last few years, I've had a range of stone axes from this area, and each clan would have its own stone axe mould, if you like, well, not mould. That's not a good word. Design, uh, the, you know, the way that they preferred it, and they would haft it. And they would use that to take the bark off, and um, just, and then they use it as a wedge to just peel the bark around. So we use stone axes and, and stone axes, fire, and twine. Really, I don't think you need much more than that, do you? No,
1: and and and, you know, Les has shown me a site in the park where the old people were still going back to one of the sites, hmm. uh, working. The stone axe grooves were there, so the traditional ones, yep. but then they must have
0: exchanged and got the steel axes. and, right. the steel yeah. now and started just, working. That's just straight over that hill there. there is a site where when, when the colonists came in, they just saw the, the utility of steel axes, and so they traded for steel axes, and we know that they brought them into this area, but the, the cruel story there is that with those steel axes came the diseases of the colony, and it just you know decimated the community here. And, and what sort of diseases people say? Nothing really special. Something like chicken pox or measles or whooping cough or the common cold or influenza. To a people who were in had no free. disease yeah. at all, this was devastating. So you know, rather sad really that the the trade that brought the disease into this area. Otherwise, we would not have lost so many people.
1: And, and I've I've seen um, engravings more on the north side where. Uh, there's pictures of these cultural heroes mm. with these dots all over them. Mm. And what we believe that to be is those diseases that came here, especially yeah. the smallpox. Yeah. Uh, so the old people knew that disease was here. They probably didn't know what it was, mm. but they knew that something was here that was going to harm them and was harming their yeah. people.
0: Yeah, so it was cruel. I mean, people don't realise... when When... Let's just take one anthropologist's view. He said there were about 680,000 people living in Australia when Cook arrived. By 1910, there were 90,000 Aboriginal people left. We'd lost, what's that, 560,000 people had died in our communities. Uh, it's only this year that the Australian Bureau of Statistics tells us that we're back to about six and a half hundred thousand. So for the first time in 230 years, we're almost back to where we were in yes, 1788.
1: But we're still a small, a very small percentage yeah. of the country.
0: Yeah, they told me there are more Greeks and, and Italians in Australia than there are Aborigines. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I've been told that.
2: I guess one of the, um, and one of, that's from a numbers point of view, but if we start talking about language though, it's a completely different
0: story, isn't it? You know, there are several hundred languages in Australia. Try, yeah. Well, Dean mob talks one language, Durga. My mob, mob, mob talk another language, Darawal. And, well, we call it the Sydney language because the language I speak here is very similar to the language of Gundungurra Hughes and very similar to the Daruk people. And we know the Wangal and Cadigal clans all spoke a language very similar to each other. I re- rely on a couple of people, Jackie Brown, um, uh, Jackie... Not Brown, what is it? Oh, no, Troy, Jackie, Jackie Troy. Troy yeah. She did her PhD thesis on that, and I've followed a lot of her work, and I've got a backup PhD after her. And she says there's a lot of commonality in the Sydney Basin. It's only when you get down to Shoalhaven and the Durga language, it shifts over. So the language around here was pretty common. And, and it is... Now, Bryce, yeah. I see you, Bryce. See, I can say hello. And, and
1: it's a common sense thing. Yeah, they it would is. have interacted at different times sure. for ceremonies and... Um, they would have come, in, come into contact with each other before Europeans arrived. So they would have had to understand each other and understand each other's country. Yeah. So that communication yeah. system would have been there. And yeah. those common words would have flowed across right. the, the invisible lines on the ground, the cultural boundaries.
0: That's right. Well, yeah. I've, I've listened to a lot of the old fellas down the south, and yeah. I can understand what they're saying. They're, they speak it in a funny way, mind you. but yeah. But I can understand. Well, what they tend saying. to
1: speak a little bit slower than us down they south. They do. They do, <laughs> and, and a lot quicker up uh, around Maori and places. They like do. That. They rattle it off up
0: yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, I don't hear it at all up there.
2: Dean, speaking of um, ceremonies, or you mentioned ceremonies. Sorry, I mean this might be more for you to answer, Les, But were were canoes or boats ever used for ceremonies besides? Well, a the dreaming
1: like stories
0: that? are about canoes, aren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean. And when the men would have went to places where women wouldn't have been allowed to go because they would have wanted a bit of privacy, Hmm. the canoes would have taken them there. They would have taken these canoes to get away um, into areas where uh, the the women couldn't access these areas. So, yeah, they would have been part of ceremony. Look, uh, everything they did, there was thought and spirituality behind it. Ceremony was a, a part of the day. Mm. You know, it was always included in what and, they were doing. And
0: remember too that uh, Aboriginal people shared, and when I'm, I was talking about uh, poor old Along and his canoe, uh, that canoe might have, he might have made that canoe and had some attachment to it, but that canoe would have been a community canoe as well. You know, other men would have used that canoe, even women might have used that canoe. So canoes are... Really, uh, they're not a proprietary product. They're a general product, aren't they?
1: Not like something like a stone axe. No, that, that would have been a personal thing. Very sacred, thing, yeah. Very sacred, which would have belonged yeah. with that that individual. And we know that through um, some of the burials that have been uncovered, that these these important people were buried with some of these important yeah. artifacts, such yeah. as axes
0: and spears and yep. points of spears and knives. Yep. Yeah. 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 They, I'll
1: just show this
2: way for that one.
0: I'll be on one of those tomorrow, on Monday, Sunday morning. On a plane. Going up to Cairns, bit of warm weather. Lucky you, Liz.
1: I'll be here <laughs> suffering.
0: <laughs> All right. You're getting around with a shirt on. I mean, I got a
1: coat. It was. It's warmer here than what it was in
2: the office. Mm. Um, stone axes. Um, did, was was the material quarried locally, or did they?
0: For a long while, Dean might want to talk about this. But for a long while in the Sydney Basin. I thought that stone axes all came from down down south or out west but just lately in the last couple of years we've discovered a um a, a quarry yeah. a, I won't say the name of the place I don't no. want people going there but there's a quarry here where the um the where the stone the pebbles that were used for the stone axes are in uh, abundance yeah
1: there's plenty of them just laying there but because again because it's not a made uh, manufactured tool people are walking past it because they don't they open don't their eyes it. when they're yeah. there yeah. they don't understand that stuff that a lot of the stuff that Aboriginal people made uh, took time and yeah. it didn't just jump out of a magic packet no. so uh, yeah that stuff's still here and it will remain here because we, we won't put that stuff in books yeah. if we're telling people yeah. they generally get a bit curious and go in there and start taking things out
0: Yeah, a friend of mine I gave him the dimensions for a stone axe, you know, the length and the size and the weight even, because stone axes, you've got to have them at a certain weight, otherwise they're they're ineffective as a cutting tool, but once they get above that weight they become overly weighty and they become, you know, ineffective that way. So 600 grams is about the average weight of a stone axe, so I gave him the size and shape of a stone axe and I told him where to go and he went down and got a blank, what we call a blank, that's just the pebble. And it took him, he tells me, between six and ten hours to grind that into a usable axe. He won't share it, though, no. He wants to keep a hold of it. And very nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But there.
2: The 600 grams, that's the actual... Um, the the pebble. pebble. The pebble, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's, that'd be the finished weight. That's the finished weight, yeah. So yep. it would have been maybe 620 or 630 when he picked it up. Yep. And by the time he's finished grinding it, it's 600.
2: And then the handle... Um, were there spe- specific types of wood that they were going for well for? Dean knows more yeah.
0: about that than I do yeah
1: a lot of the timbers would be your hardwoods mm. um, you know your iron barks are always good a lot of your, your wattles mm. your, what they call acacias yeah. I mean unless you're with the old people that, when, you, when you're learning about this stuff it, it, it's hard to learn unless you go with them because when they talk about tea trees and wattles, there's not 900 tea tr- uh, wattles in Australia. That's right. So unless you're there with them... You don't know what uh, the You, you won't is. know. They'll just say that's a wattle. They know what tree it is. Yeah. And only and an old fellow from Can River, taught me how to make boomerangs um, probably three years ago now. And it took him six hours to make one perfect boomerang, but he always talked about this gum tree wattle. And it was just a common term he used because when he seen that tree, well, the, the, it give itself up because the gum was on the outside of it. Mm. But I wasn't listening to what he said. I was always looking for the science and and all this thing. But it was this waddle here, the mm. currents. Mm. This one here, gum tree waddle. The yeah. the gum sits on the outside of it. And I ate that as a kid through the mm. bush. That's right. But he Good gave me the go. he gave me the answer. I just didn't look at what was there.
0: Now what we know is around here that they used that and as a. And sometimes, depending if you get a piece that had a natural fork in it, um, peel the bark off it and and heat it and mould it onto the thing. Or you can split one, and bind it on. And we know that they use kangaroo intestines. Um, you strip them out and you tie them on, and th- those intestines become as hard as iron. They're yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah I, I I was out in the bush oh twenty or thirty years ago shooting. We we're shooting some wallabies, and uh, one of the blokes broke the stock of his rifle and we were really upset you know what we're going to do was a beautiful rifle and it just broke where the pistol grip comes on one of the old fellas said no problem he got a bit of spinifex gum held it in place then we got one of the guts of the kangaroos we just cleaned it stripped out all the shit from it stripped it back put it in warm water to get it nice and pliable and we just bound it up the next morning we get up better the best rifle in the place perfect (laughs) So, these, you know, these old guys really knew That's their fantastic.
1: stuff. Yeah, and, and what people don't understand and, and don't give credit to the old people for what they were uh, and what that knowledge is still today. They were doctors, they were scientists, um, Yeah, they were across every trade that we have today. They were specialists, 60,000 years of knowledge. Um, they must have learned something about this place. Unfortunately for those who are really, I guess, understanding and want to learn about this stuff, they'll never get it because... Uh, it's not. It's not for the books. It's. Whenever we talk about this stuff, we talk in certain codes, and, and there's different levels of knowledge, um, and that'll continue. You know, just so we can protect it. And you know, on 45 now, I only have um, a little bit of that knowledge. I'll never get sixty thousand years. That's impossible. But I'm satisfied with what I know, um, and I'm learning all the time. Every time I spend time with Les, I spent. I, I learn something new yeah you know, when I spend time with an old woman, I, I learn little bits of those secrets, those jukes or puzzles that give me my story, my dreaming.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. and we're, we share we always have share, shared yeah. our culture that's, yeah. that's 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 how you know men pass knowledge on by sharing with the younger men. that's always been the way yeah. mm.
1: and, and one of the things that has interfered with that sharing has been money, mm. uh, putting the value. On, on money instead of putting it on the time we spent yeah, together. cruel thing. Uh, that respect, yeah. Mm. And for our people, me and Les's people, it's it's destroyed it and it continues mm. to destroy us. We've got leaders now in this country that I don't feel they're leaders. Mm. I just think they're holding hands with, with government and they're not getting the decisions we need for our people to move mm. forward. There's still a lot of stuff that needs to be addressed.
0: They're on good mm. salaries and they're yep. frightened of losing those salaries. And as soon as money comes into the picture... Culture goes out the window.
1: And we we often refer to them as job protection mode. Absolutely. yeah.
0: Yeah, No, it's cruel. It's one of the things that I've tried to instill in anyone I talk to. The knowledge that I have and the knowledge I'm passing on is not to be turned into a commercial item. It's to be shared and passed around. And the problem that I struck with many archaeologists in this area particularly is that they find out some knowledge about our culture and then they don't want to share it with us. They want to keep it because there's a commercial gain to be made from it. Knowing about things, and I had the classic example of where I was refusing to divulge certain rock art sites to an archaeologist because of a building development they wanted to go through. Their answer was not to respect my views or other Aboriginal people's views, but to threaten to use the the force of law to make me reveal where those sites are. That's that's the cruel, sad thing about us today. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah. Um, recent- I can't talk specific names, obviously. Uh, sure, but this is quite recent, or recent. absolutely very recent, last mm. year in November. And
1: That's and, and right. Les would be the same as me. Um, we we tend to be very careful about who we communicate with, what oh, yeah. we tell, and what we disclose, yeah. Because, you, you know, we, we want this stuff to be there for future generations, and, and we also want to, I guess, uphold, uphold those protocols that were given to us. Mm. So, um, Sorry. if we're giving it all away, um. There'll be nothing for us to give, no. uh, you know, and it'll be monopolised. There'll be money brought into it yeah. and then uh, the Aboriginal people will get nothing. So for us, it's, it's about, you know, con- not controlling it, I guess, but Limited. delivering it yeah. and limiting yeah. it yeah.
0: Limited. in Limited. the right way. Look, you travel, I've travelled the world and I've gone to lots of sites, you know, like the pyramids in Egypt or the caves at Lascaux or Aboriginal sites in North America. Um, once they become a money-maker, a profit-maker, the the Aboriginal people of those areas, the Indigenous people of those areas, lose control of it. It becomes either a government-controlled thing or it becomes a commercial activity. I mean, the pyramids... uh, Go to the pyramids today. It's been turned into a commercial garbage dump. The, the, The traditional people who used to do that sort of work they don't have a say in it now. It's all run by government agencies and full of corruption. And the same with the, in France, in Spain, in North America. The indigenous mm. people are the last people to have a say on what goes on with their own culture. It's a, it's a shameful thing. It
2: is. It is. Um, last year, the National Australian National Maritime Museum held a conference. Yep. On. Um, I was part of it. Year, Maui, Maui. bark canoes. The big canoe.
1: Can Can you yep. speak of that experience? Look, it was it was a. I don't know what the cost was involved in in bringing the event together, the um, conference. It was a three-day conference. Uh, David Payne was one of the main drivers for that. He works for the Maritime Museum. But um, we brought craft uh, canoes from all over the country, Western Australia, South Australia, um, and brought them in. And for me, when they floated them in, in Darling Harbour and they paddled off around the corner and disappeared... For me, that was something that life itself can't put money on, can't put mm-hmm. a value on. It, that, was, that would have been the first time that had been done for a, how long? 200, was? 220, 200, 230 years. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it was, br- it, it was bringing back that life. It was bringing life back into the Naui, the mm. canoe. That's
0: right. Mm. And when they did those, uh, the uh, Aboriginal Australia, remember that series they did? Yep. They actually had uh, Naui, you call them Nauis, Nui's, yeah, Nui's yeah. in here paddling around so it was quite exciting to come down and watch that being filmed here in Port Hacking yeah in 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 this river right here 100 yards (laughs) up the river yeah and and it's really um, go 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 and look at the short go and look at the film in the early part you'll see you'll recognise this short
1: but it's the focus of my my future my future work is to bring that stuff back bring it back to life we're losing too much Um, Les will tell you about the the engravings and, and the rock art across Sydney We're losing stuff every year. Um, The canoe is part of that process. It's bringing it all back to life, uh, reviving, renewal and return. I I started looking
0: at rock art in 1978 in this area. In 1989, I told the then senior ranger here, Jim Govan, I said that unless something's done about the rock art, you're going to start losing it in the next 10 to 15 years. Here we are, what, 20, 30 years later, 50% 50% of it's gone. 50%, one in two of the sites has just simply 50%
2: vanished. 50% since you started assessing them? That's right, yeah,
0: since the late 80, late 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say gone, they're really... I'll give you the example, the one I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to reveal to you. At, over at, uh, at La Perouse, there's a whale with a, another fish inside of it. That in the 60s was visible from 50 60 feet away, you could see the whale. Probably when you were a little boy, that whale was visible.
1: Yeah, I've seen the pictures. Right.
0: Not there anymore. It's gone. Right. Now, or if you, Bruce Howell was there, and he, he said he spent uh, four or five hours there, and it was only as the sun started to go down and the shadows lengthened that he was able to pick up occasional lines from it, and that's all. Yeah. yeah so because we're pumping crap into the air out of every car exhaust, and that air settles on the rocks. It's an acid-based carbon solution. And it just gradually peels the rock away. So unless there's actually shelters and protection put in, they're all going to go. I can take you to a place, I'll show you a photo, where there were five men dancing and an old man conducting the ceremony. And when I took that photo in 1985, it was clear to see from 10 feet away. Now there's nothing there. It's just gone.
1: And and I guess the problem is that um, park managers are... are unaware of this stuff um, money's always the thing that governs projects and, and yeah. processes but they still don't understand that all this stuff is connected, it's not about an individual thing it's about the whole landscape that we need to look after
0: yeah, and, and, right.
1: and money shouldn't be an issue
0: No, it should, it's not just rock engravings, it's a yeah. whole range of things yep. huh. I mean even their own culture all along here this this is the old Co road This is a a, a National Heritage Road. Mm. Look at it. When I was a little boy, there were sandstone-cut buildings on this road. There were water troughs for horses. This road connected Greys Point and went up into Loftus. It's all gone now. They don't even Mm. look after their own culture, so I really can't complain about the fact that they don't look after (laughs) our can I? No. 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 We're going to have to wrap it up
2: pretty soon. Um, Just got a couple more... Questions for you. Um, how can Indigenous Australians benefit from the
1: revival of, of knowledge and skills around traditional watercraft? How can they benefit? I, I mean, how can they not benefit would be the, the, mm, the, the real right. question. Mm, yeah. I mean, this is why our people are in somewhat disconnected, mm. um, they're, they're divided because a lot of them don't understand this stuff anymore. They don't get to see it. They don't get to experience it. The knowledge isn't being passed on. That sharing was the basis of our culture. To be able to share something in a collective amongst your family has been taken away from us. And there's locked gates and and too many barriers in place now for my people to just go in and, and spend time in the right place and forget about time. People, people
0: lose their culture and they lose their identity. Yes. You give them back their culture and they get back their identity. You give them back their identity and suddenly they become a useful part of the society. I mean, I worked in the prison system for 15 years. I saw how the prisons take identity away and as soon as we started to give Aboriginal men in jail knowledge of their own culture and they gained their own identity back, they became powerful people again. It, it's, a very, it's so simple... That people doubt doubt it, they just don't believe that it's that easy, but it is you give kids an identity of who they are, give them something to be proud about. the knowledge that that Dean's done of showing them how to make a canoe that's empowering that's incredibly yeah, powerful it is powerful yeah.
1: it's powerful yeah. and for them to just understand the basics of this stuff here, yeah. you know that if you plug your your your, your scientific machine into these two trees you 'll find out that they're related they're the same. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and if you look at that hill, you'll see that there's more of them. When we start looking at this as as a broad sort of scheme of things and 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 what it means, th- that's a family of trees. It's not just a stand of trees, as scientists would put it. You know, he's got a fish A body brim, <laughs> a little one at that. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> yeah. Hey, and on
2: on the trees in contemporary times, how how um, easy or otherwise is it for Indigenous people? If they so choose to make a full-size canoe to go and find the tree and to and to be able to. Oh,
0: these days there will be so many restrictions on
1: it. Yeah, there's so, there's so much red tape that, that that they don't bother. And and I'll be quite honest with you, a lot of the things I do, and it's never about me and it's never about money, I tend not to tell yeah. people. I just do it because it's my culture. I was born with that. Oh, Why sweet. should I have to ask questions to do something? Yeah, I uh, yeah. So I I tend to even in my uniform I. I I feel as though someone's watching me, um, oh. and, and I shouldn't feel that way. No. You know, it, no. it, should be, it was given to me. I was born with it. Um, it. It's not that I own it, but I belong to that. Yep. So it's important that I get that, that I pass it on, and that I spend time with people like Les.
0: Yeah. And for me, it's quite funny, because for years, I fought for the right to access my own country, Every year was a struggle and I turned sixty five and the government turns around and gives me a voucher that says I'm now allowed to go into the national parks at any time. Because of, not because I'm Aboriginal, but because I'm an old white fella, according to them. So that really gets <laughs> You're up a my nose. I'm later. a pensioner now, yeah. So that's the frustrating thing that if they treated Aboriginal people with the same respect that they treat pensioners we <laughs> might do better.
2: The voucher's only a um, is, is, it. is, I've, I've is the mulch, it's just monetary though? No, no, in no. In terms of park uh, fees
0: or is it's, it? It's, um, I don't know if I've got it still. Yeah, there it is. Look at that there. Huh? What's that saying? Exemption
2: card. It's a, it's a fee exemption. Yeah. Um, but
1: in terms of harvesting or gathering... Um, There's no rule... Streamline approach to it. Nah, nah. There's no easy way to do it. I, I also sit on the fisheries um, advisory for New South Wales and mm-hmm. report to the minister on fi- on cultural fishing for Aboriginal people, mm. and we have to define what cultural fishing is. That's right. Well, why? Why do I have to define something that is part of me? He's got another fish. Whether I'm using a fishing rod or or a spear. Why should I have to define what cultural fishing is? I'm an Aboriginal person who wants to go out and do that because I've been shown the right way to do it. Man. And um, it's not just for the sake of killing something. You know? Yeah. Okay. Beauty. Thanks, Thank guys. You.
0: All right. Thank so you. Appreciate it. Sure. it was interesting.